podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to the Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano. This is the podcast devoted to the criminal justice system and organized crime, namely giving you a better understanding of both. In the past, we have talked with family members of uh, big organized crime figures. We've talked with people that have spent time in prison. We've talked with people that have done incredible work as Activist. Well, my guest today is all three and more. Now, imagine going to federal prison when you've done almost nothing wrong. When I say almost nothing wrong, imagine going there as a first time offender. Now, imagine spending or getting sentenced to life in prison for a first time non-violent offense. My guest today holds many distinctions, including the title of longest-serving first-time non-violent offender in federal prison history. I'm very pleased to welcome to the Racket Report George Martirano, the son of uh, reputed mobster Raymond Long John Martirano and someone who was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was, though, ultimately released. George, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Uh, My pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, George, in order for folks to understand your story and the the context in which it it occurred, I think it would be helpful for folks to understand a little bit about your background and your upbringing. I, I alluded to uh, your father and his criminal history. Tell us about uh, Raymond Martirano. Who was your father? My father was Raymond Long John Martirano. He was a mobster, uh, <clears throat> alleged to be the biggest earner ever in the city of uh, Philadelphia. But my my godfather was Angelo Bruno. He was the boss for over 20 years. So basically, that's the world I was raised in. And, uh, you know, I really didn't know it till you get to be a 15 or 16, all, you know, the really, the death of it all. Death, uh, D-E-P-T-H. Anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> I could tell you stories. Of, I mean, my, my, my history goes back give you a quick story when i was uh two years old it was a gangster incidentally the street i was raised on had a nickname called gunman's row uh, fitzwater street in philadelphia anyway uh there's one gangster named benny de gimp and uh he used to like me you know i was two years old and he used to come and get me from my mother my mother used to actually shake handing uh, me to him anyway he used to take me down to the corner store or ice cream store and he used to buy me a big comb of chocolate ice cream he got a big kick of it getting it all over him and uh one day a particular day uh he's sitting on uh, the step and i'm in the stroller a car jumps the payment uh it had a driver two guys jumped out and they killed him shot him to death within a few feet of me and uh my mother hears the gunshots and that's when she runs grabs me out of the stroller so I was two years old at the time. Now, homicide detectives are looking for the family attached to that stroller and that baby. 
about two years old, they hid me around the corner to my grandmother's house, but the investigation intensified and they took me from Philadelphia all the way to Wildwood, New Jersey, 90 miles away. So I, I was on a lamb at two years old and them stories are <laughs> abundant. Abundant. <laughs> uh, that that is wild so what's that like growing up i mean mo my son's two years old and um you know if we're lucky we get him to sing mary had a little lamb he doesn't know what it's like to be uh on the lamb what's it like growing up through what i have to think is kind of a, a tumultuous childhood given what your father was involved with well i didn't i always had a roof over my head uh didn't want for anything that uh my father goes to jail when I was four years old for another, took the rap for another gangster named Little Harry, uh, Huntsback Harry, took the rap for him. And uh, my father was a, you know, a young guy. So he got 10 years, getting 10 years was a big sentence back in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, all I, all I, all I remember uh, when we would cry for our dad, I had three sisters, one older, two younger, all of a sudden, a picture appeared on top of the TV with him in an army uniform. I don't know how they did it because he was in jail. And um, when we would get upset about our dad, they would point to the picture and say, your father's in the army. <laughs> so uh, but anyway, uh, real quick, getting back to when I was two, that's how my father started getting a reputation because he was only 19. He uh, he wasn't a gangster then. He didn't have, he didn't even have a gun, but he tracked each one of those guys involved and uh, put each one in the hospital with his hands. And that's how Long John started getting his reputation. Anyway, uh, so he comes home. I'm ten years old, and I see somebody in the bed with my mother. I didn't know who the hell he was, and uh, what I caught my eye was a wad of cash on the bureau. So I woke up one of my sisters and I said, go get that money. Get some of that money. So we got the money. We went to the candy store uh, in the summertime. So the first time I met my father, I robbed him. <laughs> and so after that, what was your relationship with your father like? Well, I tell you the truth. Uh, we were always in business and in working. I worked all my life. I went to school. And after school, we worked. Uh, we controlled we controlled the vending business in Philadelphia for over 30 years. So it was work. So all I knew was work. And then uh, and I got older. We, you know, we had the, my godfather was killed and we went into mob wars, some bad mob wars. We actually had three uh, and over 80 guys were killed. So uh and then I got introduced to the cannabis industry. We can talk about that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, everybody thinks that's a great life. As a matter of fact, I did the, I'm affiliated with the Mob Museum here in Vegas. I'll be doing a show for them in April, starting April. And uh, I addressed the whole staff some months back, uh, about 40 staff members. And I had to do it before they started work, which was about 8.45. And I told them, I'm really happy to have this mob museum i'm really happy that you had jobs but all those pictures on the wall with some of them i knew you got to remember families have suffered you have to understand women and children have suffered from that life 
And I think the Mob Museum, and and I've been there and we've talked to the curator of the Mob Museum before, I I don't think they try to gloss over the the negative aspects of it. And and I do find that they also uh, do their best to celebrate law enforcement and their efforts to to beat back organized crime as well. So I, I don't get the sense, maybe you disagree, but with the Mob Museum, I don't get the sense that it's just a whitewash. I don't get the sense they're trying to glamorize organized crime as just this uh, this wonderful life that you see in the movies. Well, like I said, I'm affiliated with them. <clears throat> uh, I'm happy that the, the Mob Museum creates jobs. I'm happy sure. since I've been home, I create jobs. So, you know, it's all about having a job. But uh, like I said, I explained to them uh, in the best terms that I can. It's all not it's all not about the, the guys, you know, what children and mothers and wives have suffered immensely. Right. And, and uh, um, it, just so you mentioned those mob wars, explain to folks a little bit about the Philadelphia mob scene. Uh, you know, in New York and New Jersey, you have five and five or six uh, crime families that kind of uh, divvy up a lot of the spoils. A lot of other smaller cities, they tend to be dominated by one crime family. When you were kind yeah, of well, coming up, how was Philly? Well, actually, my grandfather, godfather, Angelo Brown, in all retrospect, he had probably the biggest territory uh, of all the families. He went from Newark, New Jersey, all the way to Baltimore. So he had Newark, New Jersey. He had South Jersey. He had Philly. He had the Atlantic City. And he had all the way to Baltimore. So he had probably the biggest territory that I could think of. But, uh, you know, uh, my personal opinion about the what started the wars was Atlantic City. Uh, everybody wanted a piece of Atlantic City, and uh, I guess they thought my godfather was in the way because uh, uh, I think everything had to be run, run by him, run by him, you know, which we really wanted to do, what type of business. And uh, they laid a, pla- a plot to get rid of him, and uh, it's a shame they killed him right in front of his house. And, uh, and that kicked off uh, a bad situation. And then the next guy that came in was a good man, Philip Tester, who I, I liked very lot. I was very close to the son. Right, the and he man. was only a boss for about a year, and they blew him up. And that kicked off another crazy situation. And then uh, and we had another one with this guy who I said my father went to jail for, little Harry Hunchback. So it was just just one thing after the next. And uh, I remember uh, I was in Florida when my my godfather was killed. Naturally, I wanted to get back. And when I get back in the city, my father sends me to Colosimo's on Spring Island. Colosimo's was a gun shop. And I go over there, and there, my father had already ordered a bulletproof glass that we actually carried around in, uh, wow. in vanilla, these big vanilla envelopes. And they had little handles behind it where you can stick your hand and wrist in. So my father had that design in case anybody ran up on him, uh, you know, he could block the bullets. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great time. It wasn't a great time. All right. It doesn't sound like that. So uh, obviously, you know, when you were growing up, right, uh, obviously it seems like a lot of the um, uh, father figures in your life were, were criminals. Did you ever think about doing something else, pursuing something else as a career, whether it be a firefighter, uh, accountant, always, doctor? Nah, my, I had it. 
I had a, uh, there was a senator that was very close uh, to me and my father, and he got me into Temple University uh, from some, some way. So I could have went to Temple at any time and been somebody, but I was, I was always on the streets. Uh, I started selling weed and uh, hash at a young age, but never violent. So, you know, I wanted money. I wanted money. You know, when you work, 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 like I did, I wanted money. So uh, I think I'm pretty good in federal law from doing 32 years in the can. But if I had my choices, two things I would want to be, a lobbyist or an attorney. I think I could, uh, there's two states that you could take the bar when you're incarcerated, and that's California or New York, but you can't do it in the feds. So if I had my life to live over again, either an attorney or a lobbyist. How did you get the nickname Cowboy? I hate that name. I hate that name. Uh, There were some Cuban buddies of mine. They had a load of weed in a warehouse in Houston, and they had these knuckleheads watching it. And they were selling it on the side, and they get in a fight uh, with Texas Rangers. And I'm in a shootout. One got killed, one got wounded, one Texas Ranger. Anyway, they didn't, it's funny, they didn't rat the warehouse out. They didn't rat, but their load was stuck down there. So they get a hold of me, and uh, he says, uh, Can you help us? They, they don't know what to do. And I said, Yeah, I'll have that. I'll have the load in. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, in three days. He said, what? How are you going to do that? And I said, you'll see. So to make a long story, in the process of communication, I had a buddy that had a strip club. And I told him, when you want to get a hold of me, I'll be at the strip club between two, uh, uh, three and four every day. And asked for Cowboy. Well, I didn't know. The feds, uh, my lawyer at the time, he was infiltrated. I had a personal lawyer. He was infiltrated by the feds. And they had his phone book. So when he calls the bar and he asks for a cowboy, I picked up. That was all they needed because now they have it on record. And I hate that name. When the indictment came down, it was uh, George, a.k.a. AKA Mar- uh, cowboy Marturano. So I hate that name. Uh, duly so, noted. But, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a brander now. I'm a brander now in the cannabis industry. I have my own beer, so I'll use it. I, I'm an expert at taking negative and turning it into positive. So I'll use it for one of my brands eventually. All right. Um, now let's talk about your experience with the criminal justice system. 1984, you're arrested. Ultimately, no, you no, decide I was to. I arrested pl- uh, September 1983. <clears throat> oh, 83. Okay. The, they put the cuffs off of me. They put the cuffs on me in Miami. And uh, I didn't see. I was in, once the cuffs were on me, I was in solitary for five years. Uh, so how did you ultimately come to be arrested? And then tell me about your decision the following year to uh, take well, a guilty plea. how much time, time we got. Because, uh, mm. What's the show, an hour, half hour? <laughs> we, we can go, uh, we got some flexibility. Yeah, because, I mean, the stories are unbound. I'm a, you know, I've been on, I've been on stages since I'm home all over the country, stories are unbound. But actually, I was living in Costa Rica. I knew the indictment was coming down. I knew it was just a drug indictment, old violence. You know, I never even had a parking ticket. 
and I'm hiding out in Costa Rica. And then there was a big problem in uh, in Miami. Uh, you ever hear Griselda Blanco? There, but oh yeah, you ever hear her? Griselda Blanco. She was. I knew her back in the day when she was doing weed, but when she got into cocaine, matter of fact, I think Hollywood's just making another movie about her. That's right. That's exactly uh, right. The, yeah, the so they were up. There was a void in my weed operation, and uh, and uh, she wanted it because she says, I know him personally. You know, she tried to marry me, uh, and uh, the Cubans said no. So the Cubans, I knew they were good people. I knew their families. So I don't want anybody uh, killed over with my operation. So I actually had to sneak back, sneak back into uh, the United States and, uh, and, uh, I settled the beef. They settled the beef, but I should have left right away, get back out of the country, but they wanted to take me to dinner. And one thing led to a nux and I was set up by actually an executive, big executive at a hotel uh, I should have caught on when he said, I want to see you, but he didn't know I was leaving town. He thought I was leaving for, and leaving the country. I told him I had to get back to New York, which wasn't true. So he says, meet me at the Hilton hotel down on the North Miami. But he didn't tell me where he worked. I always used to meet him at the office where he worked and I should have caught on, but come to find out when I met him at the pool, he had his suit jacket off hanging over the chair and there was a river of sweat from his armpit down to his belt, both arms. And I knew, I said, you rat son of a bitch. I knew right there. But anyway, uh, they had FBI women agents swimming in the pool with guns and plastic bags. Wow. Uh, Barred 10, two women barred. They had more girl agents than guys. And you know what I'm laser dots. There must've been about 30 or 40 of them on me. Uh, so if I would have known the sufferings that they were going to put me through for 32 plus years, I would, I didn't have a gun on me, but I would have went in my shirt like I had a gun and let them blow me away. So, and that was it. When they put the cuffs off on me, like I said, I'd never seen a real prison setting for five years. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, that is uh, wild. So the following year, ultimately, you decide to plead guilty instead of taking your case to trial. How come? Why not roll the dice at trial? I was you set strike up by me. my own attorney. I was mm. set up by my own attorney, Robert Simone. He had he was pending indictment, which I didn't know. And Nicky Scarfo, uh, he was the mob boss at the time. He was he was also on set me up, and uh, they had the judge. They they messed around. They got the judge all in the newspapers. Uh, the judge testified against my lawyer, Simone, uh, as a character witness. Never been done before in the history of uh, of uh, in federal court. Actually, when he came, when they called him as a character witness, he came through the door where prisoners come through and his robe, black robes. 
takes a stand in front of the other judge and says he's the greatest guy in the world. Well, so, wait, so the, the, I mean, just so just to reiterate this, uh, George, because it's so unusual, I want to make sure this sinks in with folks. So the judge in your case actually testified as a character witness on behalf right. of your of your lawyer. And when the judge testified as a witness, he was actually wearing black judicial robes. Right. And the next day they really gave it to him and testifying for a mob lawyer never been done before. So he got all this bad press. Right. And uh, so they're telling me, oh, you got it. Well, and also <clears throat> I got on the stand. My father was on trial for a murder case at the same time. So I figured, let me go in, uh, get this 10 years. Uh, me and my father were in the paper every day, every day, every day. I figured that my father was fighting for his life. I figured, let me go in, get this 10 uh, and that be the end of it. But I didn't know I was being set up. I didn't know I was being set up because they were actually, Simone was actually meeting with the U.S. attorney, uh, et cetera. And, you know, you got to understand, Philadelphia scheduled U.S. attorney's office was getting an awful lot of pressure from Washington because all those mob wars, nobody was arrested. All these guys found all over the place, nobody was arrested. So they, the word is, squeeze me. Squeeze me. And so they ignored all the uh, illegal irregularities between the attorney and the judge and my prosecutor. They were meeting in secret. They figured we to break me. That was the whole thing, to break me. Mm -hmm. And the things I went through, I could tell you stories. You would get get nightmares at night. So when you obviously you didn't know this was going on, I'm assuming that your your own attorney was was uh, under indictment, let alone that uh, he was going to be in some sort of cahoots with the uh, the judge that was going to be sentencing you. But when you made the decision to plead guilty, what sort of sentence were you expecting? And then tell tell people what you got. The government writes a sentencing memorandum. That's customary. The government. Right. Probation department, parole, probation department writes in, writes a sentencing memorandum. In the sentencing memorandum, they had me down as the leader, ma- managerial role. Role. I'm on the top of the indictment. There was nine others. I'm the first name. My guidelines were 48 to 52 months because mm-hmm. I was nine violent. The most they should have gave me was 52 months. I got light, no parole. And incidentally, ladies and gentlemen. I was the fourth person ever in America to get that sentence. There was three before me. One was Nikki Barnes, a major, major, major drug dealer. And he wound up becoming an informant. Then you had Herbie Sperling, a friend of mine, major drug guy, and a black guy out of L.A. who I knew in prison, Felix something or other. Uh, They were whales compared to me. But right there in black and white, which I used many of my pills, I was not supposed to get more than 52 months. And I served over three decades. 
So and, uh, obviously, usually the judge would go, I don't know, pretty close to what the uh, prosecution is asking for if someone's cooperating. I have never heard of the judge going so far above what the prosecution is asking for in terms of someone that takes a guilty plea. And you think this was done because, I don't know, he blamed you for the bad well, press he was getting. So much, you know, like, you know, you know I... I'm trying to get a movie done. I mean, a scripted series, but there was so much complicated. In other words, I beat that sentence. I had that sentence. I'm already in, still in solitary. I beat that sentence in 86. I didn't beat the guilty plea, but I beat the sentence. So I had to go back in front of the judge. I fought him. Actually, I was in the cell with, by fighting me and John Gotti, we were in the cell together in 22 hour lockup. We were in the cell together. So, uh, I fought him, I fought him, but I couldn't get the plea back. And I go back in front of him, back in front of him. He gives me the life, parole, life, no parole again. Wow. Right back in the hole again for years. And, uh, but my lawyer again was setting me up. I didn't know what he was doing. He was, the judge uh, sent for him privately and says, uh, I'm going to give him the life, no parole again. But I want you to hire a certain lawyer. I want you out of the picture. Hire another lawyer, or and I'll bring the sentence down to 25 years. Okay? He never told me. The lawyer never told me what the judge suggested. So when I walk in the courtroom with a famous New York lawyer, uh, Jerry Chagall, he hated me more. But the lawyer wasn't telling me what was going on because all he cared about was himself. You know, he had a RICO, and then he got hit with another RICO. This lawyer. Uh, so just... Just to go back uh, a little bit, and so f folks understand the context in which you were you were sentenced. The prosecutor with the organized crime task force, uh, they pressured you right to uh, inform on your own father, right? They never, they never, they never took me out of the jail, you know, to a private room with FBI. They never did that. They never did that because I just, first of all, they make the mistake uncuff uncuffing me. I'm going to get a chair. I don't care if they're FBI agents or not. I'm going to get a chair and crack one of the heads open. Mm -hmm. They never approached me. They never approached me. What they what they do was bring it up in the courtroom. They would bring it up in the courtroom and they would say, he doesn't want to help himself, Your Honor. He doesn't want to help himself. But I didn't know they were meeting secretly with my lawyer. And it's, uh, I just didn't know what was going on. I wasn't good as I am now with federal law. It took me 32 years. But uh, I think that sentence is still prevalent until today. That is a sentence that's been around very, very long time, which is the hardest case to beat is a frame. Hardest case to beat is a frame. So I was framed, and they ain't going to throw each other on the bus to save me. Right. So obviously, if there was any sense of fair play, the judge, your sentencing judge, absolutely, after testifying in your own attorney's, uh, you know, sentencing hearing, should have recused himself, right? But he didn't, and you brought this up in a bunch of your appeals. They, they, like I said, they're not going to throw the judge under the bus for me. I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know the father, the guy my father was on trial for for murder, which he beat. He walked out. He should have walked out of that uh, case uh, with appeals within two to four years. He took him 18 years. And Martirano, Raymond Martirano is the lead case 
in the state of Pennsylvania, the lead case that you cite for forevermore for prosecutor misconduct. I think they call that during a trial, they call 17 mistrials. So it was just a set. This, everything was stacked against us because my father was alleged for killing the Irish boss. It was a guy named McCullough. He was the boss of the Irish guys. And he was very involved with politics. He put a lot of judges, federal and state there. So the whole city just hated us. And I got the blunt of it. Uh, like I said, I, I, I mean, I, I lost count how many prisons I've been. Literally lost count. <clears throat> Do you think now, as I alluded to when uh, I introduced you, your sentence was the was really a record. Uh, this was e the um, longest sentence for a first time nonviolent offender in history. Do you think part of the reason that they gave you such a lengthy sentence was because they wanted you to inform on your own father? Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> but, you know, I'll never do it. Uh, all those years in the cage, I never even had it in my mind to be a rat. Now, it's, it's sickening what's out there. Sickening. You got more rats yeah. on, the, on, on podcasts than you can shake a stick at. I think the only two rats that are non-rats are me and Joey Molino. Yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, uh, you're right. It has become quite a, an industry. Uh, all these, uh, right. all these uh, rat right. podcasts. Hey, um, you mentioned the first five years of what your incarceration was like. What about the rest of your time in prison? How did you find prison? How did you make out in prison? Well, I made history. I literally made history. You know, I became a, I became a, a speaker for the Bureau of Prisons. I became a mentor. Uh, a multifaceted educator. I graduated one of the deciding factors upon my release. Uh, I graduated over 8,000 inmates in my classrooms. Uh, and uh, I was the only prisoner ever in the Bureau of Prisons that Washington approved the head of all the education, the education department of all the federal prisons, approved that I can create my own curriculum. And that's important because when you graduate my class, you get a certificate that you can use for positive things. And I, I, I signed the certificate along with the wardens, AW. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, one of my classes is still going on. It's called Fathers Behind Bars in some prisons uh, where we took estranged fathers from their children and united them best we could unite them back. And another one of my classes was how to start a business for $1,000 or less. I did 32 plus years and they gave me $250. <laughs> it was my walking out money. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just, it just, I got to the point where I, I never gave up. I think I'm over 32 appeals. I think I'm the most appealed federal prisoner to date. And I just never gave up. Our mutual friend, uh, Richard Stratton, he also went to prison uh, on a on a drug charge. Ultimately, he was able to get one of his sentences vacated because uh, the courts found that you couldn't penalize someone for not cooperating. They ruled that a sentence like that is uh, coercive rather than punitive. Why, in your 30-some-odd appeals, 
Was that not something that was able to get your sentence reduced? The fact well, what that we found, what I found out, what I found out right from the government, my prosecutor is a very it's sad because he's going to have to face his personal vendetta against me, which I never threatened a guy, never threatened, never did anything threatening to him in words or actions in the courtroom. Uh, he made this FBI agent, this, this guy is going to, he's going to, he's a, this a certain FBI agent. They formed a pact. He retired. You know, you can't work past 20 years in the Fed. So he, he retires, but he, they created these two evil men. They created a special office in the FBI in Philadelphia. It was the last strike. All the, there were strike forces around the country in the 80s and 90s, and then they were Budget-wise, they were all pulled. But they left the strike force in Philly with one agent running it. This one dog, this, he's a dog. And uh, his job was to make sure every time I, everything, appeals that went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philly had to go to his desk. And he personally was involved in uh, uh, working with the judges behind the scenes. You know, he'll wind up in an elevator with the judge and say, make a statement. Because this Lou, this prosecutor named Lou, I won't say his last name anyway, he had this, there was an informant with my lawyer, it was a secret informant, an Irish gangster, saying to the prosecutor, when, when George, George, they call me George, when George gets out of prison, he's going to kill you. I never threatened the guy. I had a nonviolent indictment. And for all those years, I didn't know this till when he finally retired. This dog, this dog, it's what he is. He finally retired. I was out of jail two weeks later. <laughs> so what I want to do is if the government, I think pretty soon they're going to drop cannabis from the schedule one. And then they'll use the road retroactive because they're probably going to go for a tax dollars that people owe from the cannabis industry the last 15 years. But anyway, then my, if they use the word retroactive, my indictment is no more. It goes away, vanishes. Uh, and I'm putting a $100 million lawsuit. Well, and I don't even have be... to put any... Yeah, I don't even have to put any evidence. All I got to do, put me on the stand and tell her what they did to me. Uh, we're And I appreciate you being so generous with your time. There's a couple other areas that I want to get into with you before we run out of time here. But after denial of your 33rd appeal, you actually, right. you actually prevented an airplane hijacking. How did you oh do that? God. Explain, explain oh to folks God. how this happened, because uh, this is something oh, that is uh, literally the stuff August, of movies. That was August, 2010. I just had lost. Uh, we argued in the district court, and my lawyer says, well, leave him at the federal holding in Philly until the appeals heard, because then we would have to bring him back and forth. So I'm sitting there in that jail, and, and uh, I think six, seven months, and uh, I lost the appeal. So now I get chained up. You know, they throw you on the air, kind of air, uh, and you're handcuffed. You lay a guy in handcuffs, and um, you you go. Uh, there's a hub in Oklahoma where planes come from all parts of the country, and then you might stay there 24 hours, or maybe no more than 19 days. So I stood a few days, but it happened on the way there. 
on the way there before, you know, I'm, I'm, I know how to jail. I've been in jail for a long, long time. So I know what to do when you travel many, many hours on buses, many, many, many hours in the, in the air. I mean, they'll land and take off six, seven times. And, uh, so uh, what I do is I stay up late, uh, probably hardly any sleep. I do a bunch of push-ups. I mean, crazy amount of push-ups at least 2,500. And then, uh, I know when I hit that plane, I'm going to sleep. So that's what I did. So I'm in the plane. I'm knocked out. And I feel some movement around my feet. And, and I come out of my, uh, you know, I wake up. And a couple guys that I knew from New York, they were, we were all in the back of the plane. There was only about four rows. And um, they said, there's something around your feet. They're trying to get something around your feet. And I says, who? So those guys behind us, I Come to find out, there were three Somalian pirates that just had got stiff sentences, real stiff sentences. And what was on the floor when I looked down, I thought it was a pen. Wow. I said, Wait, what the hell is that, a pen? And I looked hard and I said, oh, my God. One of the air marshals dropped his handcuff key from his belt. And it's about three inches long. It's got a rubber grip at the end and it unlocks. It's called a speed key. And unlocks your leg irons and your handcuffs. You can come out of them quick. And I know anybody holding that key is going to be killed. They're expert shots on those planes. They have they carry guns and they're coded. You know, they they put in the code. The guns released and they got the lasers on it. And they're going to kill you. Anybody around that key, holding that key, will be killed. You're not coming out of cuffs and leg irons in an air prison transport over America. You're not, that's not happening. So I said, oh my God, these guys, these nuts, they don't even know, know English. They're going to get us all killed. I said, the only shot I got is to get this key and get it away from them. So I actually, you know, you got to know how to slide with your body because you're all chain. I got bent down. I got the key. Actually, one guy stepped stomped on my wrist and you know, my wrist was hurting for months anyway. I get the key. Now, if I call the marshals and say I got a key, I want to be killed. I know I'm going to be killed. So I said, I got one shot. I'm all the way back at a plane. And I said, there was a little, you know, plane. It was near the galley. And uh, a little groove in the floor. I said, if I can get it in the groove where they can't get it, I got a shot. And I flipped it and it landed perfect. So, so Marsha comes by. I said, hey, get your kick. Well, guess what? Who, who do you think got the worst end of that? You did. <laughs> they, uh, they came, took me out of the seat, brought me up the front of the plane, and they had this, it's a wheel. It's like a wheel with this and a cloth, and it's Velcro cloth. And they attached it to the seat, and then they wrapped me in real tight. And then they put a hood over my head, black hood. And uh, that's how I remained. And when I finally landed, I, <laughs> thank God I didn't soil myself. But they weren't even taking me to the bathroom. And uh, when I land, I was the first guy taken out, and the FBI took me away. So I figured, all right, only thing I can do is ride with it. Can't do nothing. They're not going to listen to me. And they took me to some county jail in the middle of Oklahoma, threw me in a hole. And uh, it wasn't that nice. About I think, two, three, two days later, 
uh, FBI came and said, we, we know what you did. Uh, we talked to your two friends. They gave us a report, blah, blah, blah. So I says, okay, is it in my traveling jacket? When you travel with the feds in the air, they give you a little thin file. And they say, oh, yeah, it's in your jacket. I said, good, because I, I, I ain't going to tell them what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to present it to the warden and try to go get some relief from it. And I get back to the jail. Uh, the staff knew. They heard, it, heard about it uh, through the prison grapevine. And when we looked in the jacket, there was nothing there. And it took me four years, four years to get the uh, credit. The reason they waited, they wouldn't give me, because the air marshal that dropped the key, he would have been fired. He would have lost his pension. Sure. So they waited, he retired, and then it came about. So it's just more evil after evil after evil. George, you, so, you are one of the most prolific writers in the prison system. I, I think you've written more than 31 books. Why did you do so much writing? Was writing, was writing therapeutic for you? Uh, what were you hoping to get out of this while you were incarcerated? Uh, well, I call it works because I wrote, I wrote screenplays. I have written uh, novels. I have written short story books. I have written poetry. And I, I taught a creative writing class. And some of my students want to be very successful uh, from what I taught them. So it was a way of not losing my mind. I think I started writing when they threw me in a hole in some jail and Missouri, East, no, East St. Louis, no, Missouri somewhere. And when you were a Marion prisoner back in that day, you were hated everywhere you went because Marion, they had killed two guards right before I got there. So everybody hated a Marion prisoner. So I get to this jail and they take me down in the basement and they throw me in a boxcar cell. Ain't nothing nice. Ain't nothing nice. It's two stale doors. Solid steel walls, no window. You got this wire with a light bulb on it, one light bulb. They feed you with a slot. There's two slots in the door, and they get a stick, and they push the food in like you're an animal. So I was there, and uh, and incidentally, there's no toilet, okay? It's just a bunk, a steel bunk. They got a hole in the floor where you, where you relieve yourself, and there's like a clutch, a car clutch. You push, and that's where the water comes down. So they throw me in there, and uh, the light bulb went out. I think it was the third day. And I was in the dark. I was in the dark for uh, uh, days, days. And, I, and I, I, I screamed for light. I yelled for light. They, wouldn't, they just tortured me. And the worst of all, that hole in the floor, you know, when you get some meals, you you try to save a little a couple pieces of bread, an apple, something like that. And uh, what happened was uh, rats start coming out of that hole. Oh, and I'm in the dark. I got my bus shoes on my hands. I'm fighting rats with bus shoes. And it was, it was, it was terrible. Finally, I got one guard. I said, I'm on my hands and knees telling him, uh, listen, man. You don't want to give me a light bulb. Give me a bucket. I, I haven't slept in two days. I says, if I, I fall asleep, these rats are going to eat me. And uh, it was the only kindness they gave me. They gave me a bucket. 
I put the bucket over the hole, but they still didn't get me. When they opened the door for the bucket, I was, you know, on my hands and knees because I don't know what was going to happen. But it went something through the slot, maybe a half a blanket to stick in the hole. But anyway, I looked and I saw a pencil. I saw a pencil all the way under the steel slab. And I got that pencil. If I didn't have that pencil, I literally, ladies and gentlemen, I would have lost my mind. Mm. I started writing on the walls, the floor. And that's how a writer was born. And then finally, when I think it was two weeks, they took me out of there. I heard one guard said he wrote all over the friggin' cell. And it wasn't for that pencil. I probably would have lost my mind. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, we have a lot of incarcerated listeners and, um, it's an important thing for them to keep in mind as well. Hey, uh, George, I could talk with you all day. I really appreciate the time. I hope we can do this again in the future. Best of luck with your efforts. Oh, and oh, let me just, uh, go close the loop on this because we spent so much time talking about how you ended up in prison and your 32 years in prison. Briefly, if you can, you were released in October of 2015, in spite of the fact that you were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Briefly, tell folks how you got out of prison. Oh, that's it. <clears throat> that's that's about six chapters. I <laughs> mean, uh, what, the FBI agent retired. Uh, I created a case in the Second Circuit called Holloway, John Holloway. It's two prong. You've been lang- languishing in prison, and you got and you've been a good prisoner. So he was one of my students. And I took that case and I wrote a letter, which has no merit, but I'm a good writer. I wrote one page letter and I mailed it to Judge Gleason, who, well, he, he prosecuted John, second Rico, and he went on to become federal judge. And then he went to the appeals court. Now, he, he retired. He just wrote a book. Yeah, he and, was uh, been on the show talking about it. Yeah, so I, I wrote this letter. And for, you know, John Holloway got a docket number and then you know, we worked to get his release. So two months went by and I wrote another letter to my judge explaining what I did in the second circuit, just like I'm telling the audience right now. And lo and behold, I, you can't do anything unless you get a docket number. And the judge, she gave me a docket number and she granted me in chambers hearing. And immediately I went to work preparing my dossier of all my, I never had an incident report, never got in trouble. 32 plus years. All I did was do things that never been done before in good light, a very good light. And she says, well, he shouldn't be in there anymore. And uh, took me, to, but she kept me on her desk. She said, you'd better find a way to release him or I'm going to release him on the Holloway. They didn't want that. Government said he's too popular. If you release him out, uh, incidentally, John Holloway, they, he got released on the seal because they didn't want to use the case in the second circuit. And um, that's how I wind up getting a break. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. George Monterano. Everything uh, on my own. Everything. A, a really a sad story, but a really an impressive story of um, stick-to-itiveness, determination, and uh, grace under fire. Best of luck with everything you're doing now. And I uh, hope we can talk I again soon. One last thing. You know, I have my own brand. I have people working, several people working for me in the cannabis industry. I have my own beer. It's called the Grow Father, like the Godfather. I'm the Grow Father. I have cannabis industry. We're licensed. That's why I'm in Vegas right now, applying for a license. So, my my legacy before when I kicked the bucket, I want two thousand jobs, uh, living forever to help people in America. 
Uh, wishing you the best of luck, George. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. George, Martir- George Martirano. I uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. If somebody sent it to you, please be uh, good enough to share it and pass it on to someone else. Subscribe to the Racket Report podcast. It's available wherever podcasts are available. Just search the Racket Report on iTunes or anywhere else. If you have any comments, you're welcome to email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Until the next time, we meet in cyberspace i'll see you on the radio